You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And yes, this is Daniel Horowitz back in the house here at Conservative Review at the Conservative Conscience, powered by Westwood One Podcast Network. It is Monday morning, a new week, November 26, a new dawn or really the closing of the old dawn, the lame duck session of Congress, the lame duck, the lamest of all lame ducks is upon us. And we are back in the house. Another couple pounds, I'd say, on my body from from the feast and everything else. More rest, more family time. I hope you guys also enjoyed your vacation as much as I did. It was really awesome. I mean, I just pretty much from Wednesday midday, uh, through Monday, through the today, I, I was just totally out. You saw a couple of tweets from me, those of you who religiously follow me on Twitter. That is until I get kicked off Twitter. You know, everyone's getting uh, chucked off, dropping like flies by the day. So I guess I'm on borrowed time. But anyway, I, it was it was awesome. I I honestly didn't want to come back. <laughs> it, just a lot of great family time. We just you know spent time doing a lot of games. Um, my kids just learned the two older ones, the eight-year-old and the six-year-old, learned the game I Doubt You, the card game. So they really loved it and <laughs> wanted me to play all day with them. And the saving grace was that my wife had to occupy Zach, the four-year-old, and he was just about ready for the game of war. <laughs> so my wife got stuck playing endless games of war while I got to play I Doubt You. Um, and I was thinking, like, you know, as bad as war is... It's not quite as bad as my job, banging my head against the wall every day. Because at least with war, there's a right and a wrong. Like, you know, eight is definitively more than seven. In this case, when I have to deal with my own colleagues that I've worked with for years, just mindlessly spewing Soros' jailbreak talking points at a time when we have an emergency at our border, at a time when we have an emergency in our system of governance with the courts, when we have an emergency with a budget bill, emergency with spending, emergency with health care. And what are they focused on? An emergency to let out drug traffickers at a time of the worst drug trafficking crisis, which is not really even an addiction or healthcare crisis is a national security problem at this point. And I'm just banging my head against the wall and basic facts don't matter. So we're going to get into that today, but I really didn't want to come back. I'm telling you, this was, oh man, this, this was the life. Hopefully another couple of weeks we'll have uh, more time off here. But anyway, I did miss you guys. You know, it's been a little while since we've been together and as I've always said, this is my home. This is where I feel comfortable. And just warning you, I am on the cusp of losing my voice again. My throat is killing me because with that expanded family time comes more exposure to the endless runny noses with the four-year-old just sneezing on me, blowing on me all day. So uh, even though I studiously avoid taking his leftovers or drinking from the water bottles that he samples all of them. And, you know, it's hard to avoid, but he'll just come up to you and you get the germs. So I feel miserable in that sense. But otherwise, I really am happy to be back. This is the lamest of lame duck sessions. Now, lame duck is not really the word for what Republicans and Trump himself, unfortunately, plans on doing the next couple weeks. See, lame connotes inert, sluggish, aimless. They have an agenda, all right. It's the agenda of Soros. We'll try to get to as much of these issues as we can today, but we have in this lame duck session, we'll have, obviously, we have this judicial crisis, which we're going to start off with today, where, of course, Congress is not going to deal with. We have the farm bill, more status Agriculture programs, locking in the Obama-era baseline of food stamp spending, 
at a time when they're predicting $1.1 trillion deficit this year. Just the interest payments on the debt are going to create a crisis. I mean, now we have the drug crisis continuing. We have the immigration crisis continuing both with the caravan and the private caravans. And yet their one focus with control of all three branches, the final few weeks of the trifecta of control, and they are marshalling all of the forces of the center-right movement to promote Soros' jailbreak and dismantle the mandatory minimums on drug trafficking, not drug possession, drug trafficking, and many other terrible, terrible gangbangers in federal prison. Just think for a second. Of all issues, why? Why now? And this is all amidst the backdrop of a government funding deadline, December 8th, where Republicans have one more opportunity and Trump has one more opportunity to leverage his veto threat. To this day, remember, he's been in office almost two years and he has not vetoed a single piece of legislation. Think about that. I mean, Mr. Maverick, Mr. Uh, you know, tough, tough as nails, knows how to negotiate. Now, look, there, there are, is some news of him negotiating a third-party asylum settlement with Mexico. If that comes through, that would be a really welcome development. But where is the veto? Where is it? You know, Reagan said in 1985, I have my veto pen drawn and ready for any tax increases that Congress might even think of sending up. And I have only one thing to say to the tax increasers. Go ahead. Make my day. He said that in 1985. We need a president like that. Make my day. Go send me a bill that funds sanctuary cities and doesn't deal with asylum, doesn't deal with the invasion, doesn't deal with ju- judicial supremacy. Doesn't build the wall, but as you all know, my view is the previous items, interior enforcement, judicial supremacy, and the asylum issue, that is everything. Obviously, you have the caravan, the so-called caravan, literally invading our country at the San Diego, San Cedro point of entry where riot police had to come out and throw tear gas. And yet we're told that a single judge can now shut down our national security policy. So I'm going to have a piece out today. Hopefully it'll be up in time for show notes. It's a very long article. It's like 2,000 words, and I had so much more to say, but it's going to be the full legal case that no, despite statute, what you think it says, we don't have to let these people in. We never have to let anyone on our soil. And the president has unilateral authority, even without Congress, much less the fact that Congress delegated that authority to block them. So that's what that. And anyway, the president, again, has not vetoed anything, and this is where he needs to make his stand. But I want to start today first with the government shutdown. As many of you know, I've noted as we have approached all of these budget deadlines, about six or seven of them since Trump's presidency, caving on every one of them because of the fear of a government shutdown. And I noted every time that a government shutdown is not a temporary lapse in discretionary spending where 18% of the discretionary bureaucracy has a lapse in funding and doesn't come to work. The true government shutdown is the shutdown of our system of governance, is where instead of three branches of government that are co-equal, albeit with the political branches being stronger – And the judiciary having neither force nor will over political issues, they have a very important role, adjudicate civil criminal cases under the law, but that they would overrule the law and decide the law and decide culture and decide the border, and that there's nothing we can do about it, was never entertained. That is not the system of government we adopted. But nonetheless, that is the system we are told. And in this generation, we've taken it a step further 
that not only is the Supreme Court supreme, but any individual district judge that the ACLU determines to shop around to within a circuit that they're going to tie up for months, that is the law of the land. It's not Trump should never never even think about listening to it for a minute. But nonetheless, that's how everyone in uh, you know the Office of Legal Counsel in the White House and by the way, the, the civil litigation division in, at, at DOJ is terrible. They don't even assert any of the arguments I've asserted in, in the asylum case, much less the arguments over judicial supremacy itself. So we have the, this Judge uh, Tiger, Tiger, whatever, Tiger, ruling that – now, I could go unilaterally violate all Article Three rules of standing and give standing to a third-party group, the ACLU, on behalf of foreign nationals. I'm not kidding you. They literally said – in the brief, the ACLU said they have standing because they're hurt by this order because they have to um, – I don't have the exact quote on me, but stretch their staff thin to educate people on it. <laughs> if you take it to this logical conclusion, that would mean that at Conservative Review, we could sue any government policy we don't like because – like I could sue jailbreak if it passes and say, look, you know, now I have to spend all my resources, my scarce resources to deal with this. So it clearly – it's illegal for that judge to hear the case, but he heard it anyway. Now, what happens when a branch of government, you know, the president or Congress, would nakedly overstep their boundaries? Right? It would be null and void. Same thing here. So what happened was Trump just made a comment like, hey, you know, this is insane. Every time these Obama judges in the Ninth Circuit, they're out of control. This has got to stop. Something like to that effect. So, you know, we're shutting down shop on Wednesday, and the truth be told, our copy editor already left, so I wasn't going to put anything out at that point anyway. But, you know, you figure, all right, I, I want to unplug. And I, I don't know when it was. Was it 3, 4 in the afternoon? Breaking news. Unprecedented rebuke. An unprecedented move. Chief Justice John Roberts rebukes the president. So basically, the AP solicited comment from Roberts's office. Hey, you know, what do you think of Trump uh, criticizing these judges here? Now, it's interesting that the AP even thought that they'd elicit some sort of reaction from Roberts. And that's very telling that they knew he would comment. Now, typically, you, you, you just say no comment or you just wouldn't respond. But Roberts went ahead and said, quote, we do not have Obama judges. Or Trump judges, Bush judges, or Clinton judges. What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do equal right to those appearing before them. The independent judiciary is something we should all be thankful for. Now, there's so much garbage in that statement, I don't even know how to unpack it. First of all, just before we get to the legalities and the philosophy that's wrong with it, just, dude... Don't make pretend like there's no difference. Like uh, it's it's all the difference. We, we we see that on your own court, you see the splits all the time. So stop it. When it comes to nakedly political issues, the partisanship is there, just like it's there in Congress. Except the difference is, well, it's not a difference. It's the same thing. Just like in Congress, every Democrat is a liberal, and only some of the Republicans are conservative. So it's a similar thing with the judges too. Every Dem appointee will side with the Democrat political outcome on a given issue, and among re Republican ones, you know, will be divided depending on the issue. And Roberts would certainly know about that. But I'm here to tell you that this statement is more dangerous and more meaningful and more ominous than many of you probably think. Although those of you who are longtime listeners who know my thesis on the courts already. This won't come as a surprise. So first off, I just want to unpack here this independent judiciary thing. It's become this broad bromide platitude, almost like 
separation of church and state, that people think it's in the Constitution. Like, it says in the Constitution, independent judiciary. It's a made-up term. It's not independent. What about, what about the independent legislature, the independent executive? What do you mean independent? So clearly what he means and what they all mean when they say it is supreme, meaning you're out of reach. And now they're saying you can't even verbally criticize the robed priesthood in the corrupt legal profession. That's what they're saying. But what independent judiciary means, again, it it doesn't mean anything. It's a made-up term. But what it should mean, all it is is that Congress that makes the laws can adjudicate. You have to outsource it to an independent body, some sort of independent body. In other words, you can't have Smith v. v. Jones, Microsoft v. IBM, uh, AT&T v. Verizon come in front of Congress. Okay? That's all it means. But in terms of determining broad political outcomes, independent? Are you kidding me? First of all, even if you are independent, what happened to the independence of the other branches? What, so they get to encroach on the other branches? But but anyway, he's wrong. They're not independent. They're not independent at all. Article 3, Section 2, I wrote a book on this. The Exceptions and Regulation Clause, that Congress has the full power to make exceptions and regulations to the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction, which is essentially, except for two or three cases, everything they get, every case, they could abolish their terms, their entire term. Thomas Jefferson did this in 1802. He abolished the entire term of the Supreme Court. Whatever Congress did, he signed it into law. The same time as Marbury versus Madison. And, and, um, John Marshall was like, yeah, you know, they, they have the power to do this. They have the power to determine the number of justices, where they sit, whether they have to ride circuit and, 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 and go on circuit duty. And it, as it relates to the lower courts, my gosh, they can make it or break them in three seconds. Heck, the latest circuit, the special circuit court of appeals in D.C. didn't exist until 1982. So this is utter nonsense, this notion of an independent judiciary. I don't even know what that means. I know what they mean by it. They mean it should be independent like Kim Jong-un is independent in North Korea. That's what they want. An unelected, independent priesthood that could encroach the other two branches, but no one could do anything to them. But that's not true. You know... Those of you who, who read my Thanksgiving manifesto this year, and, and I really appreciate a lot of the feedback. I tried to make it a little bit more uplifting rather than just uh, you know my typical prophet of lamentation here. But an amazing fun fact for those of you who haven't read it, and I'll link to it in, in our show notes. Amazing fact. On September 25th of 1789, there's a very busy week, very busy season of that first year of Congress. That was the day that both houses passed a joint resolution sending the Bill of Rights to the states for ratification. Well, in that Bill of Rights, it included the First Amendment, which included the Establishment Clause, that the federal government, national government shall not establish an official religion. You now have courts saying that that means that Congress can't recognize any interaction of religion, any symbol, invoke any symbol. You know, really, obviously, what it meant is that you can't coerce. It worked hand in glove with the next provision of freedom of religion, meaning don't establish, for example, you know, certain denomination of Protestantism which was the fear at the time, and you know, bar Quakers from holding office, bar Quakers from, you know, or or Catholics or Jews from 
from the serving God the way they want, but the fact that they could give some sort of a prayer or recognize some sort of Protestant or any other uh, holiday or religion, of course they could do that. Right? Yet now we have courts that are telling us, you can't pray. You can't pray. You can't have a cross, a memorial. A lot of people don't know this. But on that very day that that amendment that the courts bastardized was passed, you know what else happened? That is when the House of Representatives voted on a resolution requesting that President George Washington set aside, quote, a day of public humiliation and prayer by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government government for their safety and happiness. That was our first Thanksgiving. A week later, George Washington wrote that proclamation, and he said it for November 26th. A day of solemn thanksgiving and rejoicing. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, that, that's not what he said. Um, I have it in my, uh, in my uh, article here. But anyway, he called for a public day of prayer to beseech God to pardon our national and other transgressions, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue. It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. Okay? The very day that the First Amendment was passed, that is what Congress and Washington were doing. The great Roger Sherman, again, Roger Sherman, one of the greatest of founders, signer of the Declaration and the Constitution. Brilliant, brilliant man. Roger Sherman of Connecticut, he, he said on the House floor, I looked up the debate actually, and he said that there, they would, the Thanksgiving of celebrating their constitution, the startup of a new government, quote, was the solemn Thanksgiving and rejoicing which took place in the time of Solomon after the building of the temple. A precedent in holy writ, he thought, quote, worthy of Christian imitation on the present occasion. Because remember, as I wrote in my piece, this was late September, early October. That is the holiday of Tabernacle, which is when Solomon built the temple, and that's when they had the the extra seven days that they celebrated in addition to the typical tabernacle that falls out around that time of year. They celebrated literally the construction of the new tabernacle, a.k.a. the the temple, the first temple at that time. On the very day, that's what they were saying on the House floor. And like, no, it's, it's unconstitutional. Why am I telling you this? Well, A, it was just Thanksgiving. Those of you who haven't read my piece, I wanted you to get something out of it, but we'll link to the full piece. Lots of interesting history in it. But here's another interesting point. Not that very day, but four days later, September 29th, is when the House passed the final version of the Judiciary Act of 1789, that was the bill that created the entire structure and jurisdiction of the federal judiciary. In other words, when you had from the time you had the government starting up, you know, from, from March that year until what was this, late September, you didn't even have a federal judiciary yet. It wasn't made yet. It needed its first signal from Congress to be created. No less a figure than John Marshall himself in an 1810 case said that implicit in this bill was the exercising of Article 3, Section 2, which grants the judiciary only the jurisdiction provided to it by Congress, and that this bill placed, quote, a negative on the exercise of such appellate power as is not comprehended within it. So you know, a lot of people think, oh, so Congress could strip jurisdiction of the courts. No, no, no. It's stronger than that. The courts, including the Supreme Court, only have the appellate jurisdiction 
that Congress gives it. Whatever was not in that act of 1789, it could not adjudicate. Independent the Dithawali. How tragic that these same courts are now striking down our very legacy that was passed that very week. Now, immigration, now borders, they, they could never imagine, like, you know, a court saying, hey, President Washington, uh, don't, don't send the troops to put down, uh, you know, put, put down the Whiskey Rebellion. It's it, it just, this, this is the stuff that even in our movement, no one wants to talk about. Anyway, back to John Roberts. This is why I'm, I'm very disturbed about this. I warned at the beginning of this presidency, I said, even if John Kennedy, uh, if, if um, Anthony Kennedy retires, I said, you're not going to get a five to four Supreme Court majority for us. I said, John Roberts is going to be the new Anthony Kennedy. And it's not just Roberts. To a certain degree, Alito and Kavanaugh I've seen already. To lesser degree, Gorsuch, except for a couple cases where he's bad, like on um, crime and immigration. They're not like Clarence Thomas. And I warned you that the new problem is the lower courts, where it's death by a thousand lawsuits, that they just throw a thousand things at us. The Supreme Court refuses to take them up. They deny emergency expedited um, appeals, emergency motions to stay. Even when they finally take up the cases, often the administration gives up by then. It immutably changes the arc of our border policy, our election law. It's immutable. The votes are counted. The impoverished aliens, the criminal aliens are let in. It's immutable damage. We're seeing that a lot on immigration. Stuff the Supreme Court would never do initially, but they're allowing the lower courts to control our destiny. And I warned you that this was Robert's surreptitious way of allowing this to go through. Robert's is bad, and he has a lot of bad rulings. But like some of the real crazy stuff, a guy like Robert's, you know, he still believes enough in the Constitution. He's not going to do that. But what he'll do is quietly, just passively, not take up the appeal. Okay? And I warned you this was a big problem with him not taking up the appeal. Because, now, it shouldn't be a problem because in the same world, other branches would ignore it. But if they're not, here's the problem. If we're going to accede to judicial supremacy, here's where it's indefensible from John Roberts. This is a man who has said nothing publicly about the growing trend of violating legal norms and rules of standing and violating reams of Supreme Court precedent on immigration and many other issues from at the hands of lower courts. That is his branch to, to police. He's the chief justice. He sets the policies, by and large, for the federal judiciary. That's his turf. I agree. Yet he allows them – basically the Supreme Court's impotent. The lower courts rule, and which one? Whichever one the ACLU determines. But this guy suddenly, and God opens the mouth of the donkey, he just flatulates about Trump? Really? So you open your mouth up about the president of the executive branch, but you don't police your own very inferior courts in your own branch? That is what's indefensible? But at the same time, it is very telling and very ominous because it demonstrates to all of us that what I suspected that he was going out of his way to allow these cases to stand. I wrote about this a lot. The global warming case, suing the government for global warming. It already went twice to emergency requests to the Ninth Circuit, and Roberts turned it down, and Thomas and Gorsuch dissented. said, how do you allow something this nutty to go through. Speaking of religion, you have a nutty Fourth Circuit saying 
that a county in North Carolina cannot pray at their county commission hearing. And not only do you have like our history, our tradition, our legacy, our constitution from the day it passed, literally September 25th, 1789, but you have the town of Greece v. Galloway, five to four decision written by Kennedy in 2013 that just slapped this down, that just said no. As long as you're not coercing anyone, you could, you know, you could have any prayer you want. How are lower courts allowed to just overturn the Supreme Court from just recently? Like they did in Trump v. Hawaii. This very judge to whom Trump is lodging this criticism on behalf of whom Roberts is defending violated Roberts' own decision a couple months ago in Trump v. Hawaii. That is very telling, folks. And by the way, in that case with the Fourth Circuit with um, public prayer, again, Gorsuch and Thomas dissented from the denial of cert, the denial of the appeal, and said, uh, you know, Thomas wrote a whole screed, actually. He was like, dude, like, didn't we just deal with this? This is insane. And it goes on for years, and it becomes legitimate in the legal profession. The cancer spreads. Now we're all desensitized. It's like a judge, if we would have beat it two years ago, a year and a half ago when this started, maybe you could have stopped it. But now it's become normal. Like we don't even bat an eyelash. Yeah, anyone could get standing to sue on immigration. Any alien has a right to come in or at least a right to sue. He's allowed this to go through. Very, very dangerous. You know, there's nothing more radical than DACA. Obama literally took people that pursuant to law have to be deported and unilaterally gave them social security cards. Okay, so that was bad enough. Trump just merely just doesn't do it. And the district judge said, judges, several of them said, no, you have to do it. And the Ninth Circuit agrees with it. And this was before the Ninth Circuit actually gave the ruling. The, the, the DOJ appealed to the Supreme Court. It was like, this is nuts. You, you can't, like, no. And Roberts was like, no, no, no. You'll get, uh, you'll, you'll get your day in court with the Ninth Circuit. You'll come back to us, you know, afterwards. And meanwhile, you know what happened in between? Arizona went through the Ninth Circuit. They had a district judge, a three-judge panel, and an bank panel of the Ninth Circuit say that immigration law is not the law, DACA is the law, and therefore Arizona has to immutably provide uh, driver's licenses to illegals. I mean, that's something that's irreparable harm. And, and it wasn't just that they didn't act. The Supreme Court explicitly denied cert. They are directly – Roberts is upholding this lawlessness. I warned you. And one other thing to say about this, I I said um, – and, and we're running late. we got to get to some other things. I said at the time that last week when you had Timothy Kelly, that rep- Trump-appointed judge in D.C., that – that gave an injunction for Jim Acosta to get a press badge from the White House. I said, one of two things is happening. Either even a Trump judge agrees to this insane understanding of constitutional rights, of fundamental rights, First Amendment, flipping it on its head from negative to positive, legal positivism, or maybe they deep down don't buy into it, but they so badly don't want to be perceived as being political that they're political. And that's really the essence of John Roberts. He is so sensitive to what the media, the liberal elite legal people say about Trump, about this and that. So he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, Trump's kind of out of line there. Like, I know he didn't use those words, but but that's essentially the message that has gotten across. And that's what scares me. A lot of people think, oh, you know, the Trump judges like Kavanaugh, he's going to go zealously the other way and he's, he's not going to care. I'm like, no, if you understand their culture, they so badly want to be viewed by their legal friends as being impartial. So they're actually going to go out of their way 
to go after Trump, even when it's unfair. And again, you're seeing that Kavanaugh did not join several, you know, of Thomas's stuff so far. We're watching him carefully. So this is very, very disturbing. And just to come full circle on this issue, this is what I mean by the lamest of lame ducks. It's the ultimate lame duck. Congress has ceded all of its legislative authority to the courts. By the way, I'm debating with people what the over and under is on when the courts are going to start getting involved in budget bills, budget deadlines, saying, hey, you have to have the uh, government funded by this point. If not, here's a budget. X number of dollars for Department of Education, X number of dollars for State Department, and, and, and so on and so forth. That's the joke here. They have no power. And they won't do anything. And this is why I'm telling you, this is more important than the border wall. Because as I've said on the show many times the last couple of weeks, this is not really a resource problem. It's a lawfare problem. So if you don't deal with the judicial supremacy and come you know, bring this issue to a head – uh, you, 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 you're pretty much screwed. We're pretty much done with. But you know that's where we are with this Congress. And, and I just wanted to point out one more thing, and I'm going to have this in my article today, but in case you guys don't see it, I think it's, it's really, really important. Um, Edmund Randolph was one of the you know, top 10 founders, at least in my view, he certainly was one of the top founders from Virginia. He was the first attorney general of the United States under President George Washington. And he th- – th- th- this is a man who actually you know, has a lot of credence because he started out being an ally of Madison at the convention, supported the construction he had. But then he st- he left because he was concerned about the powers of the federal government. And then eventually he was brought on board at the state ratifying convention in Virginia to support the Constitution. So he went back and forth. So it's very interesting to look at the genesis of his issues and you know what was rectified in his mind about the system. And what's amazing is that he actually was concerned that the federal judiciary was going to be a problem. Which is why one of the reasons, you know, he had a whole list of complaints. Some of them were adopted in the end. Some of them were dealt with at the, the very last week of the convention. Uh, but then, you know, he he spoke up at the Virginia ratifying convention in favor, and he said, "Look, quote, my objection would be unanswerable, meaning the objection of you know the runaway federal judiciary, were I not satisfied that it contains its own cure in the following words." With such exceptions and under such regulations as Congress shall make, Congress can regulate it properly, and I have no doubt they will. Imagine that. No doubt that Congress – again, talk about this independent judiciary. It's not independent. And what's amazing is Randolph went on to serve, again, as the first AG under this very government that he initially opposed and then supported – and then following the passage of the Judiciary Act of 1789, this was the next year late um, – I believe it was December 1790, uh, Congress asked him for recommendations on you know, just updating the judiciary, what we should do. So he wrote a memorandum to Congress, and he made it abundantly clear that the courts rely on Congress for their jurisdiction over issues, not the other way around. Quote, the Supreme Court, though inherent in the Constitution – was to receive the first motion from Congress. The inferior courts must have slept forever without the pleasure of Congress. Can the sphere of authority over value be more enlarged? I mean, he, he was telling them, like, do whatever you want. You, you have the power. Anyway, I thought you guys should know that. So speaking of unelected judges, so rather than dealing with judicial supremacy, the next issue we're going to go on to is jailbreak. The genius is every single think tank on the right, pseudo-right, every commentator, except for me, Mark Levin, and a few others, even some friends of mine have been bought out on this, refuse to learn the issue. Those of you who have stuck with us from day one have a front seat at this. I've been warning about this issue for four years. I've been writing hundreds of articles on it, every possible angle, 
both philosophically, the general trends on, on what is exactly in the federal system and what's not, how, in fact, incarceration is going down in raw numbers, not just in the rate. Crime is going up in a lot of places. We have the worst drug trafficking crisis ever, and that it's more of a national security problem driven by transnational cartels. We've covered every angle of this, and it all ties together. But one interesting thing is that part of this whole bill is to give judges more discretion in lenient sentences. So, you know, they were reducing the mandatories on drug trafficking, on gun felons, and some other categories. Um, so really, really, we're, we're going to give judges more discretion. I, I'll never forget when Mike Lee, who's just a fanatical, fanatical supporter of not just this piece of legislation, but the broader jailbreak agenda. Um, look, don't shoot the messenger. I mean, that, that's how he is. I don't know if it's from some of it's the LDS church. Some of it is, is his experience. I don't know what it is, but that's how he is. And he once said, this is why we have judges. You know, they, they should meet out the sentences. We shouldn't mandate it. Are, are you – do you have your head in the sand? This was the impetus for the Reagan agenda on the Armed Career Criminal Act and all the mandatories because of the radical judges in the 60s and 70s. And now these judges that we have today put these guys to shame. You're going to give these idiots that say there's a right to immigrate, there's a right to FGM, but there's no right to religious liberty? You're going to give them discretion to let people out of prison? Are you kidding me? But anyway, so this, this is where they've planted their flag. Every conservative organization is expending their entire capital in this lame duck, not on the border, not on judicial supremacy, not on the budget. Not on health care, but on passing Soros' agenda on crime and dismantling Reagan's legacy. It, it is unbelievable. I don't even know how to respond to critics anymore because they're kind of taking the Gang of Eight tact. If you remember the Gang of Eight and really all the amnesty iterations, here's what they do. So first, when the ball is not in play, in other words, when we don't have a live legislative vehicle that we're actually having a definitive fight over, it's more in the abstract, more philosophical. So it's all grounded in talking points and platitudes, straw men arguments, unicorns. Oh, all these people in federal prison uh, for a li- for life for simply smoking pot. <laughs> I mean, just like, like, yeah, I don't know how to argue with that. It's doesn't happen. So, I mean, like, what do you want me to tell you? Find one and, you know, if that's all he did, yeah, we'll let him out. I mean, Obama already – Obama went through the entire federal prison population, which was already reduced by 40,000, and he let let go 2,000 drug traffickers. He didn't even let go any any drug – anyone convicted on drug possession because there weren't any. I mean, anyone that he felt – in other words, anyone that is currently there now, Obama – Passed them up for early release. And now they want to let them out. So anyway, what they did with the Gang of Eight, if you remember, is you know, they would be very open up front. Like, we need amnesty. They came here of no fault of their own, undocumented, this is not good, this is not right. All their arguments. Okay, then we and we combated those arguments. We had a philosophical debate over it. Then it comes time for the specific piece of legislation. And then we point out. This guy's going to get amnesty, and this guy's going to get amnesty, and here's what it's going to do to enforcement. And they're like, stop lying. It does, the bill doesn't do that. This is not amnesty. What are you talking about? No one gets amnesty. In fact, this is an enforcement bill. This is If you're against this, you're against enforcement, and they would even run ads against people who oppose the Gang of Eight saying that you oppose border security. So a similar thing is happening here. If you notice, I spent four years debating this philosophically on every broad level. Like, no, this is not what's in the federal prison. Um, no, we don't have an over-incarceration problem. You could always find cases that are problematic, but for every one that is, you have 20 others that are under-incarcerated or never incarcerated. So fundamentally, we don't have that problem. We went through the fact that it's mainly an illegal immigration problem as it relates to drug trafficking. We went through the problem that a lot of them are are initially picked up and charged on worse crimes. We went through the fact that this is what led to the 70% decline in violent crime. We cover this from every angle. And they're like, no, too many people to, to, uh, serving too long for BS sentences. Let them out. Overcrowding the prison, prison population. So they were very clear that the entire purpose of this was to reduce the prison population. 
now that they have the piece of legislation where they merged, again, the Senate front-end reductions on sentencing with the back-end good-time credit programs, multiple programs to let them out and cut their sentences by a third, so you put them together um, you know, a 20-year sentence could easily be 10 years for drug trafficking, 10 years, five years, roughly, give or take a year by my calculations. So what would happen is now they're like, shut up. Stop lying. The bill doesn't do that. It doesn't let go anyone. I'm not kidding. They say, no, no one gets early release. No one. Like, th- th- this is current law. No, they, they could already get more time credits. No, uh, they already have to be housed within 500 miles of domicile. No, they already – it doesn't do anything. Oh, okay, so then if it doesn't do anything, then uh, what are we fighting over? Oh, I, I guess it does nothing. Then why are you maniacally pushing this as reform? The reality is, as we noted before, when you ask the public straight up, should we reduce sentencing or early release heroin or meth or fentanyl traffickers serving in federal prison? People don't want that, and that's before you tell them that really a lot of them are illegals. A lot of them have committed murder. A lot of them have a massive rap sheet in the state system because that's why the feds go after them. But we don't load that up in the polling. So that's why they can't say they're releasing them, even though they, they, they want to. They say it openly. They, they've been saying that for years. They believe this bill is modest as anything. They want to do more, which is why I always point out Section 208 of, of Lee Durbin. That part didn't make it into this provision but in this, this iteration, but you see that that's what they support already. It was to reopen sentencing for juvenile murderers in federal prison. That's where they are. They fundamentally don't believe in prison. But suddenly they become bashful. When it comes time to actually push the legislation, like, no, it doesn't do anything. The reality is the only time that they're right that it doesn't change current law is in the recidivism programs, the training programs. That is actually true. It does nothing. It literally – it's a talking point. It, it, it mandates nothing on the prisoner that they're not already doing. So in other words, they're getting all – all this new time off for free without demonstrating any sort of reform. And, and that's, that's the other thing about this. They, they say, shut up. This is not prison relation. It's prison reform. There's nothing reform-minded about the bill. It's the same thing I would say with immigration. And you notice I'm going to cross-pollinate the issues a lot because they connect both in terms of the politics, the policy, the people pushing them, the arguments used to promulgate them. When it comes to immigration – I was like, look, say what you want about amnesty, but it's not reform. It's just straight up leniency, straight up amnesty. There's nothing reform-minded about it. Reform-minded is you know, restructuring, like you restructure our immigration system, like the RAISE Act, making it merit-based. That, that, that's reform. There's nothing reform about this. It's, it's, it's the same thing here. It's not like reform would be what we're pushing, which we should all agree to, the overcriminalization of BS crimes. <laughs> Let's shake hands on that. The men's ray stuff, criminal intent, clean up some of the duplicative provisions, some of the things that don't need to be federal. I'm, I'm, I'm open to that. We all are. Let's do it. It's not done in this bill. And reform is, is, is balanced, and that's the thing. There's a lack of balance here. It would mean, okay, finding who you think needs reduction, let's target it, and let's target the many more that need stronger sentences. That would be reform. This is straight-up leniency, and, and, and that's the central thing you need to know about this bill. What this bill does is it, it's a catch-all baseline that starts off allowing everyone to go into these programs, allowing everyone to get this, allowing everyone to have to be housed within 500 miles of their domicile. Um, everyone has all these new entitlements, new um, – what do you call it, uh, internet time, leisure time, rec time, and then it just makes exceptions. And some of these things, there are no exceptions. So that that's the one thing you need to know about this bill that proves the lie. Because if their talking point was true, you would target it. You'd say you – would, you would start the opposite direction. All things equal, you're not eligible unless you're there for this sort of category of crime. Now, there's a reason they're not doing it because they want jailbreak. They want as many people out as possible, and if they did that, it would apply to very few people because most of them are really bad dudes. So that's why it's a catch-all baseline. It's a catch-all baseline. The reality is it's not just regular drug trafficking. 
even people that have drug-related robberies involving assault with a dangerous weapon are eligible. Violent carjacking resulting in serious bodily injury. They're eligible for the early release. And again, the, what it is is it's 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 um it's 15 days of of uh, credits per 30 days of participation. And then there's another just good time credits. It increases from what is it 46 to 54 days. So that's even more than a third off. And then there's several other programs early release into home confinement or there's a vaguely defined community supervision. So that's another problem with the bill. Everything is vaguely defined. It's a talking point, and we're going to go through that. But first, the other point, that so many people are roped into this because they're not exempted. Threats to assault, kidnap, or murder a federal judge. Remember, I said, like, they have, okay, if you kidnap a federal judge, you're, you're not eligible. But if you threaten one, you actually are, and that's the more common one. Assault resulting in substantial bodily injury to a spouse or child. Strangulation of a spouse or intimate partner. Smuggling aliens into the U.S. with records of aggravated felonies. Using a deadly weapon to assault a law enforcement officer. Trafficking heroin, fentanyl, if not also convicted of certain other charges. Arson. By the way, even if the arsonist puts the life of a person in jeopardy. I think it's only if someone gets killed from the arson. Domestic assault by habitual offender. And yet, Rand Paul has this op-ed out at, at Breitbart. I don't know why Breitbart is, is publishing that crap. Saying, why are we locking up nonviolent offenders for life? First of all, they're not there for life. And second of all, they're not nonviolent. And what's worse is they made the bill even worse. So when this bill passed the House, so you know you have the time credit system that allows prisoners to accrue all these credits for participating in recidivism reduction pro- programs or productive activities. I promise you that's not that's not the summary of the bill. That's the legislative language. So they could say, "Hey, um, if you play softball, if you watch movies, and certainly even the educational curriculum, as I've said before, that actually does need to be reformed because that's revolutionary." It's extremely dangerous, those programs. But they could use these credits to transfer years early to pre-release custody or supervised release. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here's an interesting thing. Um, In the House bill, it says... That the director of the Bureau of Prisons shall transfer prisoners described in this subparagraph into pre-release custody. Right? The Senate bill says it should be transferred into pre-release custody or supervised release. It adds on the word supervised release. What is supervised release? Home confinement is bad enough, and like we said, they don't allocate the resources in this bill because they want the talking point of saving money. So that's bad enough. That's a joke. But they have this new category they create, supervised release, in this new iteration. Also, in the old bill, there was more discretion from BOP to um, not allow them out. And now, once they're designated as lower level, which these people believe they're all lower level, that's the problem, there's really no discretion to stop that. And remember, all this, the, the, the courts are already mandating judicial jail, jailbreak, just like you have judicial amnesty. Imagine when you codify all this stuff in the bill. All this stuff, they're going to litigate every last leniency in the courts. See what they're already doing. But they'll never answer. They'll never answer why, if this is low level, why don't they exclude these people? Why are these crimes missing from the ineligible prisoners list? Right? It makes no sense. Assault and robbery. I mean, I guess this is, you know, this is not nonviolent. You know, we're running out of time here, but there's so much more to say. Over the weekend, there was news 
man killed woman hours after his release from prison authorities. This is an article from Fox News. This is a man who um, police suspect of killing a woman hours after his release from Arizona prison. So he was in a state prison and he was arrested on Saturday. This man, so this man was in there on forgery and possession and use of dangerous drugs. So this guy, now, again, I would argue most people, even in the state system, if they're there on possession, it's really the, you know, the prosecutors, no, just innocuous schlepper just doping himself up, not doing anything, is serving hard time in prison, even on a state level. Now, certainly a federal level, this guy wouldn't be in there, but he's there on a state level. I, I don't know his rap sheet. I don't have it in front of me. I, I didn't bother to, to look it up. But here's the point. Even a guy like this, who is much less of a criminal than what you'll find in the federal system, you see the nature of these people. Freeze frame and understand that on day one, the minute this bill is passed, 4,000 people because they apply the early time credits retroactively, some of the programs, 4,000 people are eligible right away. Now, I understand someone will say, well, they're going to be out anyway. At some point, most of these people are going to be out. Yeah, but it's a numbers game because it's like anything. It's garbage in, garbage out. It's front-loaded. The more you have rapidly leaving quicker, the more federal law enforcement has to deal with going back in these communities. It's a whole policing program behind this. And by the way, the Fraternal Order of Police noted this in one of their critiques. They made this point. They said 4,000. They said even Obama did 2,000 over eight years. Now you're doing 4,000 on day one and then staggering thousands more over the next number of days and weeks and months. And the Fraternal Order of Police was suddenly bought off. That provision never changed. You know what they also noted in the bill? I did a Twitter thread on this last night. Some of you might have seen. They said that – so the bill requires DOJ to within 180 days make an assessment for all 170,000 prisoners of their risk. They called that provision unworkable. It hasn't changed since they lent support to the bill. Hasn't changed. Again, if anything, they added on the sentencing reduction. The, the Senate bill to it. They made it worse. This is, they, they wrote this letter in May when it was only the House bill. And I'm going to link to – I have a PDF not just of the Fraternal Order of Police but of nine law enforcement agencies. Eight of them are still with us. But FOP is the biggest, most established with the most connections. They threatened and bought them off. But again, this is another example of how it's a catch-all baseline. If your talking point is true, just target a specific offense. Say, okay, who's in there on simple possession? Now, you'll find none other than a couple of criminal aliens are in there on that. But target it to that. Don't make DOJ go through murderers and people on death row and yada yada. And that's another point here. This bill – so not every so look, if you're a murderer, most murderers are not eligible for the time credits, but they are they, but they do participate in the programs. Why have them do that if they're never going to get, get let out? Even people on death row are it, it's a catch-all baseline. I'm just saying even if you believed in the philosophy, the bill was written as a talking point. The bill makes no sense. None of it makes any sense. And obviously, FOP pointed out that it's going to let out drug traffickers at the worst time. That certainly didn't change. It's the crux of the bill. And yet they flipped. And then another very important thing that they mentioned is this 500-mile provision. Let me, let me just explain it a little bit. So the bill mandates that, that uh, these prisoners have to be housed within 500 miles of their domicile. 500 driving miles. Now, the the talking point behind it is like, yeah, you you want to you don't want to mess them up and just send them away. You got to, you know, keep them closer to their community. Now, that sounds like a nice talking point. But there's reasons for certain things. The reason we have this is because again, most of the people in federal prison are really bad dudes, particularly the ones most let off the hook on this bill with early with reduced sentencing and early release gun and drug traffickers in the federal system are major gangbangers and what you want to do is a keep them away from their base of operation and b 
You want to divide and conquer. So you don't want gang members together. So let's say you have a whole bunch of people. You know, I just saw in Jacksonville, Florida, they just arrested arrested this whole gang of 40 people charged on drug trafficking and gun trafficking. But again, as I said, arson and attempted murder, and I believe murder as well. How much do you want to bet they won't be convicted on that? They'll only be convicted on the drug trafficking. But these are the type of people they are. Well, you don't want to house them all in the same facility. FOP made this point. That has not changed. And also, there's just logistical problems that you only have a certain amount of Supermax facilities. So some people need Supermax. I mean, the bill doesn't make exceptions. Now, these guys are like, shut up, Daniel. It doesn't change anything. That's current law requires that. It's not true. It's current policy. It's current policy. But there's a difference between when you codify into statute with no exceptions, they could, they could take you to court. It's the same thing. You know, one of the straw men, so now that you understand a lot about this bill, so they have, a, you know, in addition to all this, they have these like ancillary provisions. And one of them is not to shackle pregnant women. So you could tell right away that's like a virtue signaling talking point that has nothing to do with the rest of the bill. If you want to do that, just pass a standalone bill. But the reality is it's current policy. BOP doesn't do it. Now, look, if this is all you want to do, fine, pass it. But I'm just going to tell you that there's a difference between policy and statute. All things equal, yeah, I mean, I don't know, why would you do it? But, you know, keep in mind that there are some women in federal prison that are really nasty and really violent. And, you know, you don't necessarily always have Hulk Hogan or Floyd Mayweather as, um, as, a, as a prison warden. Often, especially in a female prison, there'll be female guards. So, you know, all things equal, I mean, I guess, you know, if you're Jane Smith in in federal prison because of, like, tax evasion or something and you happen to be pregnant, well, yeah, I mean, I guess you're not a threat. But, I mean, if you're you're a major gangbanger, MS-13, you know, and they and Washington Post has a whole article on female recruits to MS-13 – Look, you know, I mean, all things equal, you don't want to, but, you know, there are going to be times you do have to leave it to discretion. You can't endanger your prison wardens. And the prison warden union came out against this. No concerns for that. It's all a freaking talking point. This bill is all one big, fat talking point. So, um... This is where we are with with this bill. We're we're just about out of time. I just I just want to read to you, just um more going on here. So, anyway, where is this? The crux of the bill, obviously, again, you get 15 days of credit for 30 days of participation, and you get put into pre-release custody or or um supervised release for these credits. The language of this bill is insane. Okay? So it says, again, you earn credits for participating in, quote, evidence-based recidivism reduction programming. Well, what, what is that? What, what, what is that? Okay. Well, notice they don't, they don't make exceptions. They don't define anything. That's what they do in this bill. Notice there's a common thread. It's a catch-all baseline to ensure as many people get it and as many people could litigate their way into the status. Just like with the amnesty. It's written the same way. See, this is why you can't be a single-issue politico. You have to know the art of politics and what these people do on other issues. And because I follow almost every other policy issue, I see this stuff. Even if you would have some sort of gray area where maybe philosophically we'll disagree what's low level, what's not high level, certainly, certainly nobody could deny that the vast majority, overwhelming amount in federal prison are really irremediably broken people, and you don't want to let them out. right? At best, you'd say, okay, maybe there's a slice. So define it for us, and we'll talk about that. But I'd also like a balanced conversation on how to make it easier to land evidence in court. You know, when beyond any shadow of a doubt, much less a reasonable shadow of a doubt, someone committed murder, rape, armed robbery, and yet they get off on technicalities. Let's let's work on that. But no, they don't give a damn about crime. 
all of buying for criminals. Anyway, so they do define in one section, they define evidence-based recidivism and reduction programs. It means has been shown by empirical evidence to reduce recidivism. <laughs> um, well, what kind of evidence? I mean, it, it doesn't say. It doesn't talk about the methodology. It doesn't say anything. It doesn't say what it considers evidence. It just says merely, quote, some evidence. So there's that. It's unbelievable. Um, but, it, but it gets worse. So the second clause defines the program as being, quote, based on research indicating it is likely to be effective in reducing <laughs> recidivism. <laughs> See, all the groups crafting the legislation have endless white paper reports saying how amazing it is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, you know, it, it is uh, – it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's what they do here. And then, and then the second clause, by the way, is the, the, the credits all, are also applied for, quote, productive activity. So there's the, the, the recidivism programs and there's productive activity. What does that mean? It means a group or individual activity that is designed to allow prisoners determined as having a low or no risk of recidivating to remain productive. It, this is Orwellian. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. So he, here's the cute thing about the bill. So on the one hand, it again, it's a catch-all baseline that is very you know wide open on the eligibility and then very narrow on the exclusions. That's what they do. So you know they're all yeah you know you you just you just watch some TV you're eligible. Unless, quote, the warden finds by clear and convincing evidence that the prisoner should not be transferred into pre-release custody. So the guy can't just say, look, you know, this guy's a very big problem. I really, I mean, I don't want him released. No, he'll take you to court and they'll win. So they'll apply clear and convincing standards to the prisoner's favor, but they won't pl apply it to the prisoner's actions, being eligible. Unbelievable. Anyway, I have, I have so much more to say about this, um, but I'm not going to bore you with the details because unfortunately details don't matter to these people. But details is what we will be doing. Again, we got to get to the budget bill, the farm bill, and watch for any more information on the border invasion. We have you covered here at Conservative Review. Thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of the conservative conscience.